God, I pray for Matt as he comes and speaks tonight. Um, God, that that your words would be what is coming out of his mouth, God, that your word would be alive and renewed to us. Um, God, I ask that um, in all of these things, we would glorify you and thank you for allowing your presence to be here with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey guys, welcome to Sojourn, where we have some new lights that I get to uh, interact with and a nice new fresh carpet. Uh, my name's Matt, for the couple visitors I do see in the room. Uh, we're glad that you guys have chosen to join us this weekend. Uh, we have a special group of visitors here from Southeastern Seminary, so uh, thank you guys for coming. Southeastern is the school where I did my Master's of Divinity and my Master's of Arts, and uh, Dr. Greg Mathias, special thanks to you for leading this trip out here. He wasn't doctor when I was at the school, but he had a huge part of my program, and he, along with others, were really happy to see me sent out to a place like Portland, so I'd quit coming back to the campus and, and asking them questions on how to do this thing called church planting. Um, we're really looking forward to have you guys work with us. They're going to labor alongside of us here in Concordia, Alberta Arts District, for the next couple of days, and then they're going to work with uh, Kevin and Eastbridge Church. Kevin also went to Southeastern, so really glad to have you guys in town. Our prayer is that uh, you leave here with a, your heart aligned with God's heart for this city and for this place. And that hopefully some of you, if you don't come back here, that you at least pray for our city, that you feel that burden that, that we feel, that Eastbridge feels, and that others in our city feel, and that you would pray that God would send more laborers here if you're not those laborers. For the last several weeks, we've been walking through the book of Nehemiah in a series called For the City, and we've been asking ourselves, what does it look like as the people of God to exist for the city where they live, for the, the city where they've been called and for us that live here, that city is Portland. So what does it look like for us to exist for the good of the city of Portland? And tonight, as we continue, we will see an unfortunate aspect that is part of any great movement throughout history. Anytime you study the details of a great movement, a great advancement of Christian work, there's typically a dark shadow that overlays the story. So think throughout any great movement that you've had a chance to study, whether that's in, in a history class or about Christian movements or missionary movements around the world, there's typically this dark shadow. It just seems to be part of the narrative. And the circumstances described in chapter that we're going to look at tonight are similar to what people experienced during the American Revolutionary War. During that time, the Continental Army suffered badly during the winter of 1777. Proper clothing and blankets were so sparse that soldiers sometimes would stay up all night rather than freeze to death during the night while they were sleeping. So that's how sparse things were. They'd rather just kind of freeze and stay awake because they were afraid that they would never wake up if they actually fell asleep. When French General Marquis de Lafayette arrived, he saw men whose legs were black and in need of amputation. The crazy thing, as I looked at this story, is the issue wasn't that the, the winter was so harsh. By some standards, it was actually a mild winter. The problem was that the army had no clothes because the merchants in Boston refused to sell government clothing off their shelves for anything less than a profit of 1,000 to 1,800%. They refused it. They just said, we're not, if we're going to make this much money off of it, we're not going to sell it to you guys. And so what they did this to their own people, the fellow man, out of greed. Every movement, every great work seems to have a dark side to it. And the movement in the city of Jerusalem through the leadership of Nehemiah is no different. We saw last week that there was some opposition that was starting to arrive. Prior to that, Nehemiah got everyone on board, everyone's doing their part, every type of 
vocation is working on the rebuilding of the wall, the rebuilding of this city, and we see opposition come in from the outside. And then the question became, it's not if we will face challenges, but when we face challenges, how is it we will respond to those challenges? In the case of Nehemiah, his response was doing God's work God's way. And I'm hoping that will be our response as well. Not, not if we face challenges as a church, as a church plant, but when we face challenges. And as we face challenges, how will we respond? Will we respond as God's people in God's way? So following the opposition from chapter 4, the rebuilders are successful at averting the threats. And so now what we're going to see is, is the enemy sneaks in. He says, I tried, tried the outside opposition, and it seemed to work a little bit, but it didn't go to the length I was hoping. So let me find a different strategy. If Jerusalem, if their enemies cannot thwart the enterprise, the next solution is let's turn within. Let's see if we can get internal conflict to start happening, and let's employ a strategy of a house divided against itself. As we all know, a house divided against itself will fall. It tells us that in Matthew 12, 25. It says, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And so overcoming the opposition in chapter 4, from outsiders, we're now going to turn our attention to a new and in some ways a surprising opposition internally from fellow Jews. It seems to always work this way. They're first opposed by non-Christians, and you think that was kind of expected. The culture's against what it is that we're doing, and then they don't share our vision. So it's not surprising. They're, they're not a fan of this. Over, over, they overcome it, they press on, and suddenly it seems to creep up problem within, within the church, within the church community itself. Many are surprised to find out that the number one reason that overseas missionaries leave the field early is due to teaming, internal conflict within a team, internal conflict with a supervisor. And the same is true of church plants like ours, which is why, I want you guys to listen to this, especially if you're part of our church, this is why we must guard against any seeds of disunity and distrust in our midst. We have an enemy at work, and our enemy does not want us to be for our city. The enemy wants us to get internal conflict, fighting with one another on different pages, and wants us to quit. The enemy wants us to throw in the towel. The enemy wants us to be one of those statistics that says every church plant fails the second or third year in. We just started year three as my family living here, and we're not throwing in the towel. So hopefully you guys are on board and joining me with me and saying we are going to fight against this. J.I. Packer, he said, Satan is a hater, a wrecker, and a destroyer. And only when he is ruining God's work in individuals and communities is he happy. And so what we're going to see in tonight's passage is Nehemiah is going to deal with injustices in the community. And he's going to take measures to end the exploitation of the weak in the community by its powerful members who are ignoring God's commandments. And so what I want you to do is turn with me in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Nehemiah. We're going to be in chapter 5. We'll start in verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible or you don't own a Bible, we have blue ones in the connect table in the back. That is yours to keep or if you just need to use it for the, tonight. And then I will have the words next to me on the screen over here. So before we get into the passage, let me pray for us. God, we want to come to you, and we want to give this time over to you. God, Nehemiah has been a great book for us to study through the last several weeks. Although it's not a one-for-one -one equivalent, God, there are so many truths that are relevant to us right here today in the city of Portland. God, I pray that during this time that your spirit would be in this room, that you would move throughout this place. God, that you would draw our hearts closer to you, that we would be more in line, more in tune with your heart, 
for these people, for, with your heart for the city where you have called us, where you've called your people to dwell. By your name we pray. Amen. Read with me, starting in verse 1, chapter 5. It says, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And so what we see is a protest of sorts has broken out among the people. But this is not like many of the protests that we hear of in our city. It's easy for us in the city of Portland to think of protests because we're on the news constantly for protests. And I'm not saying the cities, our city's protests are bad, but they all have their proper time and place. But most of the protests in our city are due to something not going a certain way, a certain way that a group of people wanted it to go, maybe a certain vote. And so they say, you know what, we're going to go protest on the river and we're going to get all over the news and maybe we'll even fight with one another. We've all been there. We've all been upset about something that just didn't go the way that we wanted it to go. My kids are upset about that every single day. When something doesn't go the way that they wanted it, with they, the meal that they wanted or, or whatever, the toy that they wanted me to buy them that I didn't buy them. So we're used to seeing these things. But here's a different type of protest. What we see here is there's a famine that has hit the land. And there's an overtaxation that is affecting every single person in the city. But it is really impacting the poor of the city the most. And so this is a protest out of desperation. These people are hungry and they have no money. And so they're protesting against the shortcomings that are evident in their own community, and they're being inflicted by their own people. And so just as we saw in that war, it was, it was against fellow man of their, of their own kind. It's the same thing that's happening here. It's fellow Jews that are inflicting this, this over-taxation, and the people are going, we're hungry. We, something's got to be done. And so what happens is in the midst of this, these shady characters show up into the city and they start handing out really bad loans, loans that allow people to mortgage their fields and houses in order to make ends meet or just to be able to feed their families. If you think about loans, that's really just not that, that's not uncommon, that's not unforeign to us today, especially when we were in college. I know we have some just post-college students and we have some college students in the room as well. So if this is different from when I was in college or maybe it's not different, here's your warning. It seemed that it's, it was always those companies that would show up and they would target the most vulnerable students. And they would say, hey, here's a free pizza. We know that you're in college and that you're hungry. It's hot and ready. Go ahead and take it with you. Or they would say, I know the tickets to the game are sold out tonight, but guess what? It's your lucky day. We have two tickets to the game tonight. Or, hey, you really want this T-shirt? We have a T-shirt to your college. What do I need to do? All you need to do is sign up for this credit card with a really low interest, and this is yours. And many of us got duped into those things, and we would take those things. And it seemed like those characters were always come when we were hungry. I mean, you're a college student. You're always hungry. So you see free pizza, and you think, oh, do I sign up? Okay, I'll put all my information there, and I'll sign my life away. Or it's the day of the game. There is no tickets in sight, and everyone's going. All your friends are going. You're going to miss it. And, hey, here's the tickets. Just sign up for this credit card. And it's like the companies knew when to be on campus, and they knew exactly which students to target. Some of you, hopefully not, but some of you may even still have bad credit as a result of a decision that you took in college to get a free mug or a t-shirt. I know people that are still paying back debt that goes back to that for signing up for something that they were really duped into. So this is kind of similar to what's going on. Pick up in verse 4. It says, And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children, Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it's not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. And so today, if we get into financial trouble, we have a number of options. 
there's, there's different ways that we can get out of it. We can take a loan out on a loan, or we can go um, bankrupt, or there's many things that we can do. But in those days, it was different. There really was no other option other than to pay back the money you owed, pay the king's taxes on that money, or die. And so it's pay the money or you die. You really got two extreme options here. There's no, not all the other options that we have today. You couldn't just go on being in debt forever. So in many ways, the people are being forced to mortgage their families in order to meet the needs of feeding their family and paying their taxes. Especially you parents in the room, think about it. You're going to do whatever you can to feed your family. And, and if you're imposed that you have to pay taxes or die, you're going to do whatever you can to pay your taxes. And so they're very desperate. And so this protest of sorts breaks out out of desperation. And the, the wealthy Jews here clearly only think about themselves and their own needs, not the effects that their business dealings will have on others. As long as they're being taken care of, they don't really care about their fellow man. Now, how do you think Nehemiah is going to respond? Nehemiah, the leader of the day, how is it that he's going to respond to the desperation of these people? How is he going to respond to the protest of the people? Given the position of power that Nehemiah has found himself in, the easiest thing for him to have done is absolutely nothing. Now, that may seem harsh, but the people that we're talking about here, by the culture standards, they don't really matter that much. They're not that important to the rebuilding project itself. These are the least important people. This is the group of people that much of society ignores. People just kind of walk by them whenever they, they see them on the sidewalk. They're not the movers and the shakers. They're not the high influential ones of society. These are the meek, the mild. These are the little guys. But we're actually going to see Nehemiah respond a few different ways. And before we get into those, let's be honest with ourselves. Most of us are not very good at being confrontational. We, we're kind of a couple of camps when it comes to confrontation. On one hand, we avoid it at all costs. We ignore issues and we pretend there's nothing going on. Many of us do this in our relationships. Some of you maybe for years, maybe with your family members. And you just kind of, you know, kind of gloss over things and things are fine. We only have to see them at Thanksgiving and Christmas. So as long as we get through the holiday season, things will be all right. But there's really an underlining issue. But you just don't want the confrontation, so you just avoid it. Do whatever you can. Or some of you, on the other hand, you're like a wrecking ball when it comes to confrontation. You take out anyone that opposes you or anyone that gets in your way. Now, in case you're wondering, neither of those is the proper response. But I want us to pick up in verse 6 and see how Nehemiah responds to confrontation. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you're exacting interest, each from his brother, and I held a great assembly against them. So we see that Nehemiah's initial response was anger. He says, I was very angry. Nehemiah gets upset. As you read the Bible, you see the God of the Bible gets upset and angry at injustice and the exploitation of the weak. But I think many of us, we tend to think when we hear anger, we hear words anger and, and, and getting upset, we tend to think it's a sin for some reason. But that's not what we see in the Bible, and that's not what we see here. I think the reason is most often we hear anger, we think of someone flying off the handle. Maybe you had an angry parent in your life. Or maybe you are the person who struggles with anger. And so we think of someone just getting angry and bulldozing through the room and just throwing everything over. They, you know, they get into the, the, their car and someone cuts them off and they chase that person down and they you know, almost rear in them. Just because out of anger. That's what we think of most often. We think of someone flying off the handle. But that's not what we see here. There's something churning deep down inside of Nehemiah. And he knows he can't sit by passively and watch it. He says he's getting angry. He goes, I've got to do something. And so he knows that his anger has to turn to action against what he's watching happen to these people. He doesn't care that they're the lowest of society. 
They are fellow man. He goes, I must act. I must do something. And I believe that most of us avoid confrontation because when our anger boils up inside of us, here's what most of us do today. We quickly send that text message. We quickly jot up an email and we send the email before it's too late because we're angry and we want them to know that we're angry. Now, by the way, it's always a good idea when you're angry to wait at least 24 hours. Go ahead and write that email, write that text message, copy and save it into a notebook somewhere on your phone. But it's always good to kind of let it rest for 24 hours. Maybe even send it to a trusted friend. I've had to do this in the past where I've written up something. Man, I'm going to send this to this person. I'm so upset with them right now. Here, I want you to read it. And that person will usually talk me off the ledge and say, hey, man, I think you need to calm down. Maybe some of this is right, so maybe some of it's not. But just cool down. Just take a breath of air. Sleep on it. See how you feel tomorrow. Seek the Lord on it. And see, Nehemiah, on the other hand, he models for us what it looks like to handle confrontation in a healthy way. Nehemiah, first, he takes time to himself. He just says, man, I just got to blow off my steam here because I'm really mad at, fel- at what they're doing. So he just takes some time. He kind of steps away from the situation for a moment. And then he gains his composure. And then he seeks the Lord before confronting them. So he says, man, I'm, I'm going to blow off some steam. I'm going to gain my composure. I'm going to seek God and see how it is with wisdom that I need to respond to these people. Because he knows he has to do something, but he wants to do it in a wise way. And then we see Nehemiah confront the nobles and the officials, and he brings charges against them. Now, most of us are good at confronting people we don't know. Think about this week if you're driving down I-5 and that person that cuts you off. Or maybe, maybe the person who almost hit me on my bicycle a couple of weeks ago. Like, we're really good at responding to those people. Because normally what, what we'll do is we'll honk the horn. You know, lay on the horn. Man, they just cut me off. Or maybe some of you will actually yell at the person. And, and you'll just, you know, I don't know what words you're yelling at, but you're yelling at the person. Or maybe some of you in a sinful rage don't raise your hands, but maybe you throw a hand up with a certain finger. Because you're that upset and you say, I don't know that person, so it really doesn't matter. I just, I'm so, I'm just going to let it boil over. But however, when it comes to confront, confronting someone we know, friends, family, our church community, especially someone at a level of authority over us, we're not so good at it. Most of us start backing down. We, we start sucking up. But in the case of Nehemiah, he doesn't do that. Nehemiah looks at these nobles and officials in the same way that God looks at them, and he calls them out for oppressing their own people. In Deuteronomy 23, 19 through 20, it says, You shall not charge interest on your loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake and the land that you're entering to take possession of it. And so we see in this, this verse of Deuteronomy that taking interest from a fellow man, from a fellow Israelite who borrowed out of poverty was actually forbidden. But here they are doing that. They're, they're, they're breaking that law. And so Nehemiah continues in verse 9. He says, so I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Now, let's be honest. Most of us in the room, we talk a really big game. We're upset at somebody and say, man, I'm going to charge into that room. I'm going to go to my boss's office. I'm going to sit down for that coffee meeting. I'm just going to, I'm going to lay it out there to him. We talk a really big game. But then some of us get into that room and then get in that moment, and all of a sudden we, we turn into like the shy little kid, like, hey, so I needed to talk to you about something. Um, like the other day when this happened, we get kind of timid. Because I think we're afraid we're going to go into that, that sinful side of anger, but we get kind of timid in that. But not Nehemiah. Nehemiah comes out with boldness, and he says, what you are doing 
is wrong. You need to stop and fear God because what you're doing is displeasing to him. So he calls them out, and he calls them to accountability. He says, you are wrong in what you're doing, and you need to stop doing this because this is displeasing to God. It's not even about Nehemiah. And he goes on to verse 10. It says, moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. So we see Nehemiah, so much wisdom here. He doesn't just point out their wrong and blame them, but he points out his own wrongdoing in the situation. How often do we see that in leadership? It's real easy for the leaders to point out, say, man, you're wrong in this, and you're not doing this right, and I told you to do it this way, and you agreed to do this. But how often does the leader take owner? And he says, I, I am wrong in this. So I'm not only pointing out to you, but I'm saying that I am wrong in this as well. He doesn't say this is just your problem and your fault, but rather he says this is our problem. This is our fault. And he presents them with the moral challenge in such a way that he himself must also respond. So he's saying, I'm calling all of us to respond collectively to this. So he's not calling on them to repent, but on everyone to repent. And Nehemiah gives us a really good life lesson here. Think about the, the recent conflict and confrontation that you've had. There is almost never a situation, maybe, maybe there is never, but almost never a situation regarding conflict and confrontation where they are 100% wrong and you are 100% right. Now, I know we like to think that we're always right. You know, when we get in an argument with our spouse, we're like, man, I'm, I'm right here. I know that I'm right, and I'm going to stand by this. I can't tell you how many times I've done that because I'm an idiot. <laughs> and I let things cool down, and Andrea and I take our time away from each other, and then we kind of come back around, and it's like, yeah, yeah, okay, yes, I was wrong. Probably more than 50% of it, I was wrong. And so Nehemiah, he leads with repentance and on his own part, and he calls those he has accused to follow suit by stopping their wrong actions. But what I notice here is he has the courage to say that it's wrong. He doesn't back away from that. He takes time. He kind of lets the steam out. He seeks the Lord, and then he confronts them. But he still confronts them. This is not popular in our city. We live in a city, and, and we are in a generation that touts tolerance. And so we are told not to be confrontational. We, we have to tolerate everything. And if you don't tolerate everything, then you're the one causing confrontation. But at the same time, some of us are the most confrontational people, and we're one of the most confrontational generations alive, and we're very good at it. Why do I know this? Because unfortunately, like many of you, I have social media, and social media breeds confrontation. And man, people will say things on, a, on social media posts that they would never say to somebody's face, that they would never say to some stranger in the street, yet they get online, and all of a sudden they get puffed up or full of knowledge, and they just blast people. We're entering an election year, and I'm not looking forward to it. But we'll get through it <laughs> together. And so we know that we're going to sit back and watch certain individuals. Hopefully none of you in here. I'll be praying that it's not any of us. But you will, people will engage in a level of controversy online that they never would think of doing over coffee with somebody. And they will just rail people on, on whatever side that they're on. And so what we see is we're in a generation and we're in a time that there's all these passive-aggressive posts on social media. But you know what that results in? Nothing. Nothing changes as a result. And so the messages that we hear in our city, a city that we are for, a city that we, that we want to be for, is we love everybody, and we will love everybody. The message we hear is that we will tolerate everything. The message we hear is, we, is that, that nobody is wrong. Have your opinion. Think however you want. Order your Big Mac with fries or don't. There is nothing wrong. Yet, 
This mentality means the problems are never fixed. Nobody's ever confronted. Nothing ever changes. So Nehemiah stands up, he speaks out, and he says, what you are doing is not right. What is remarkable is these men heard what he had to say, and they responded in repentance, and they stopped exploiting and hurting these people. And so here's something I think that we need to grab and take away from this chapter. We live and minister in a culture that tells us it is wrong to tell anyone that they are wrong. Okay, let me repeat that again in case you didn't hear it. We live and minister in a culture that tells us it is wrong for us to tell anyone that they are wrong. But this doesn't make any sense to me. As I was studying this this week, I was like, this, that is crazy. When we take a step back, do we not want someone to tell us if we are living a life that is headed towards destruction? Would we not someone, want someone to say, hey, yo, you, you're on this wrong path here. This is not good for you. This is not good news. This ends in a really bad way. Is it actually loving if we passively sit by and watch someone destroy their life and head towards eternity of separation from God? And we are told to do this in the name of love. It just baffled me as I was thinking, studying through this this week. I was like, how is that love? Now imagine that, that there's a section of the, a bridge out in our city. Pick whatever bridge you want. We have lots of them. And, and I don't want to think of like a bad disaster, but let's just say hypothetically there was a, a small minor earthquake, not the big one that's supposed to take us out, and it took out a section of the bridge, but they didn't have time to put signs up, and it, it just not, not many people knew yet. There weren't, there weren't signs, there weren't warnings, but you somehow knew about it. Maybe you were on the other side of the river, and you watched it happen, and you knew it, and you've got a friend who you know has to take that bridge every single day on their commute to work, and it's about that time where they're probably within a few minutes of crossing the bridge. And so you think, should I tell the person or should I not tell the person? And you decide, I'm afraid to tell them because I don't want them to accuse me of trying to speak truth into their life that maybe they don't agree with. And so you'd rather them have the freedom to make their own decision, whether or not to take that bridge or not take that bridge, which means your friends will drive off the bridge and most likely plummet to their death in the Willamette or the Columbia River. Now, that's crazy. Of course, we wouldn't do that. If you see the bridge out, you're like putting on social media, you're calling 911, and if you know your friend's driving, you are calling them, you're texting them, you're doing whatever you can possible because you don't want your friend to drive off of that bridge. That would be crazy, but we do it every day at the same time. So my point being, like Nehemiah, are we willing to have hard conversations with those in our culture? Are we willing to actually point people to Jesus, not as an answer, but the answer? Are we willing to actually point people to Jesus as not an option, but the option? While the reality is that we are carriers of the most loving message in the world, at the same point, at the same time, the message of the gospel is going to be offensive. Guys, there's no way around it. We're going to get to a place where it's going to offend people. And yes, we want to do it in love, and we don't want to do it in a stupid way. We want to do it with wisdom. But we're going to get to a place where the gospel is offensive. And if you're faithfully proclaiming this message day in and day out, that message is probably going to get offensive very quickly to those that are in your life. So are you willing, in love, to offend the people of our culture in order to share the truth with them? When we see something happening in our midst that is not right and causing harm and hurt to this body, are we going to sit by passively and watch, or are we going to be like Nehemiah and have the hard conversations when necessary? I'm not saying I want us to be the church that's known for fighting and being against one another. That's not what I'm saying at all. But just as we are for the city as a church, I want us to be known for the church that is for one another. And if we're for one another, we'll actually have the hard conversations. We'll actually have the challenging conversations, and we'll actually be willing to have grace-filled, hard faith, uh, conversations with one another.
regardless of challenge, regardless of opposition. And you know what? It won't surprise us because we have an enemy at work around us. Let's see where Nehemiah goes with this in verses 14 through 18. He says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for their work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people." So what we see is Nehemiah as the governor, his position, he has the right to raise the taxes on the people for his own use, but he actually declines to take advantage of this opportunity. Nehemiah foregoes his privilege, his rightful privilege as his position because he knows something better, his love for the people and his faith in God. So Nehemiah has put himself on par with his fellow Jews, regardless of what their status was. He's laboring with them and he's not using his position for gain. More than anything else, Nehemiah wants God's name exalted and the weak and vulnerable people protected. He trusted God and he loved God's people. And what's remarkable is not only does he lay down his rights as the governor, but he demonstrates radical sacrifice and generosity in order to take care of the people. We see Nehemiah goes above and beyond as a leader. Nehemiah takes care of the people, but at his own sacrifice and rights and privileges that were rightfully his. Nehemiah does not desire to live a comfortable life while his people are in need. Derek Thomas, one of the commentaries I used this week, he says, Nehemiah shows a shepherd's heart. He is a leader, and he must ask the people to engage in hard labor. But he's also a pastor. He loves them. He has compassion on them. So most of us, if you think about it, we put our personal prosperity before others' well-being. Most of us see the homeless in our own city, but do we know them? We have a really big population here. But do you consider them your neighbor? Do you love them like you love your neighbors next door? Most of them will give something to them, but we don't want to be asked to do too much. And it's astonishing that we see Nehemiah, a man close to God, he knows the lowly in his city, and he treats them with just as much respect and dignity as the highest in the city because he loves and fears God. That's one of my desires for this church, that we'll see people with, of all different socioeconomical statuses, that we'll see all people of all different racial statuses, that all different backgrounds can feel the freedom to come and take this journey of learning what it means to follow Jesus and follow him faithfully in our city and that we can all be for our city together. Listen, what I don't want you to do tonight is leaving here feeling guilty. And there's a few reasons why, but the number one reason is because by the time you wake up tomorrow morning and you take that first sip of coffee, the guilt would have worn off. So I don't want you leaving here feeling guilty. What I want you to do instead is is to point you to the one that can do something in your life, in the lives of the people in our city, and that person being Jesus. Jesus, who in spite of your badness chose to love you, chose to live for you, and chose to die for you, not because of something you did or didn't do, but because of his light and his faithfulness on our behalf. Jesus, who is choosing to make all things new. Jesus, who saves you and changes you. He changes you to live the type of life that we have seen tonight from Nehemiah chapter 5. It's this same Jesus that changes the lives of the people of our city. This is the hope that we have, and this is the only reason we can actually be for our city because of Jesus. 
And it is Jesus who will change the city, and it is Jesus who will change the world. And so for us as a church, we really exist for one sole purpose. It's not for me to be made famous. It's not for us to be made famous. It's not even for Sojourn to be made famous. But for the name of Jesus to be made famous in the city of Portland as we seek to be for the city where he has called his people to dwell. Can I get an amen? amen? Are you guys with me on that? This is why we exist. And as a church, I want to give you the opportunity to respond to Jesus tonight. Now, we do this as a, a number of different ways as a church. If you're part of us, you know this. But tonight we're going to do this by first worshiping through song. We sing these songs of praise through Jesus. Take time to dwell on the words that are up there. Let it be from your heart. As Mandy said earlier, sit if that's what you feel like you need to do. Stand, raise your hands, kneel on the floor, kneel on the wall. Don't sing, just meditate on the words, whatever it is that God's spirit prompts you to do. That is an act of worship. The second way is by giving. Some of us give of our time, we give of our talents, give of a prayer. Maybe it's a prayer of confession. Maybe you need to repent of something, or maybe you just need to seek God on behalf of our city. I, I shared this quote with you guys last week, but I want to share it again. It says, if we want our churches and cities to stay the same, then we don't need to pray. And so I've got this growing burden that we need to become people of prayer before we really do anything else. But if you guys are content with how our city is, and if you're content with how our church is, and how the greater church of Portland is, then don't, don't pray. But if you're not, then pray and seek the Lord. Finally, we give generously by giving of our financial resources as an act of worship. And so that's why we have the box back there. You can feel free to, to give money there. You can feel free to, to write your prayers down there if, if you want us to pray for you. And then we also have the chance to celebrate through communion tonight. And the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, 19 through 20, it says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So for us as a church, this is how those of us that are in Christ remember what the Lord has done. This is how we believe again and how we commit again to what Jesus did. It's a reminder for us week in and week out. And in a sense, it's how we kind of reset the clock. Because it's so easy for us as we get busy with our weeks to forget the gospel message. And so this is how we can remember again. And maybe you're in here tonight and you're, you're exploring Christianity or re-exploring Christianity, the church, for the, for the first time. Or, or maybe you grew up in church and you're re-engaging for the first time. Whatever the case may be, you're welcome here. And my challenge is for you to consider what Jesus did on your behalf. And I want to boldly tell you, like Nehemiah did, that Jesus is the only path to a life worth living. And Jesus desires that you commit your life to him tonight. And I believe making a commitment to Jesus by taking communion tonight is a great outward sign. It's a great first step to posture your heart after the heart of Jesus. Maybe you don't fit either one of those categories. Maybe you're in a place of uncertainty, maybe trying to figure things out. And that's okay. Know that we love you and that you are welcome here, and we look forward to taking this journey with you. And during this time, I encourage you to seek the Lord and ask the Lord to make himself real to you. So I'm going to pray for us. We will respond to Jesus. I'll have Mandy come out and close us in worship through song. God, we want to thank you that we have the opportunity to gather and worship your name. God, you've allowed us to worship through fellowshipping with one another over coffee, by singing of songs, teaching of your word. God, now we want to give back as a way of response 
more prayers, more worship.